The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings to all, and welcome to an extra special edition of our Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard, and I am joined by Tim Foster. John. And our special guest today is Paul Mitchell, who we usually talk about redistricting. Today, we're going to talk about Roe v. Wade and that draft opinion that just landed like a bombshell all across the country. Paul, welcome. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. I guess the first question is, what happens, assuming that this is correct, that this ultimately is decision, the decision, the ruling that is made, what does that mean for California as you see it? Yeah. Yeah. So um, first, let's put out our disclaimers that uh, I'm a redistricting expert and I definitely work a lot in voter data. And I'm definitely, uh, I think, well suited to uh, explore how this decision might really change our politics and, uh, you know, these finely tuned districts that have been created uh, and their perceived uh, electoral outcomes now that we have this kind of bombshell. Uh, My wife, uh, as many might know, is uh, the CEO of California Planned Parenthood. So this is something we've actually been thinking about for uh, months, if not years, the fact that uh, there's a good possibility that we would lose this fundamental right that uh, most Americans have become used to over the last 50 years, uh, the right for a woman to make her own health decisions around Um, abortion. And um, so uh, I think first off, the fact that it's a leak is definitely uh, um, pretty shocking. And the people that I've talked to and uh, that we look to in kind of the legal side of of, uh, politics clearly say that this is kind of an unprecedented thing. I guess the last time a leak was, uh, a leak of an actual decision was done was, you know, back in the 40s or 50s, where like a typesetter uh, got a draft opinion out. Um, uh, The rescinding of a right is not generally what we think of when we think of the Supreme Court. Yes, we have a Republican majority Supreme Court, but uh, in our lifetimes, the Supreme Court has only done things to advance civil rights, whether it has to do with education or housing or jobs or um, voting or, you know, uh, marriage, uh, and, uh, abortion, it's kind of been a one-way street. And this Supreme court is poised right now, not only to potentially roll back this, but also, um, there's a case out of New York right now that has to do with gun rights where they could roll back the ability of States to regulate, uh, guns. Uh-huh. And remember that Baker case, like the gay Baker case that the guy didn't want to build, make cakes for gay couples. There's now a, there's now a web designer who doesn't want to make web pages for uh, gay people. And the Supreme Court accepted the case. So we could have kind of a, a trifecta of um, rollbacks in these, uh, you know, areas that, most people thought were pretty settled law and the ramifications in our elections could be pretty massive. What about legislative leaders put on the ballot in November? The legislature approves. It's got to be at least a two-thirds vote in each house. Um, 
to basically enshrine this idea that California is a haven for 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 abortion rights. Do you think that play into the general election at all? California already supports that pretty overwhelmingly, but would that yeah. play out in the election? Do you think? Yeah. So, um, so first off, when we think about playing out in the election, I'm sure you're not asking about will it help Governor Newsom win re-election? Because I think we've all decided that that's a done deal. Um, so Gavin doesn't need this for his own personal benefit. The real swing races are legislative and congressional races um, around the state and outside of California, around the country, a number of legislative and congressional races that could tip the balances uh, of power in DC and in a lot of states tip the balance of power in the state legislature. And, um, you know, it's, it's real interesting. I've been giving a lot of presentations and, you know, prior to yesterday, my presentations would have a slide that would essentially show all the metrics by which Democrats are in bad position right now. Um, the economy, uh, you know, the reaction still to COVID mandates. Uh, Joe Biden have really low popularity. The generic ballot where you, you know, ask people like, not if they'd vote for their member of Congress, but just in general, are they likely to vote for a Democrat or Republican or Congress? All the metrics prior to yesterday have been horrible for Democrats. And in presentations, you know, they'd say, well, that means, doesn't that mean that they're going to have a bad year? Like Democrats are going to have a bad electoral year. And my answer is always that the November election is seven months away from now. And seven months away from now, logically, should be as similar to today as seven months ago is similar to today. Seven months ago, nobody in the U.S. Has died, had died from Omicron, and Larry Elder was the leading candidate for governor uh, in the recall. So a lot changes in seven months. And my argument in presentations has been, wait for these Supreme Court decisions and let's see how much that changes the electorate. Now, there might be parts of the state where this is gonna just be shockwaves. I think a place like Orange County, where in 2018, the swing voter was a white suburban, independent or Republican college educated woman. Um, so in a place like that, this decision, and then maybe a statewide ballot measure on abortion access and enshrining that in the constitution, that can definitely drive turnout, change hearts and minds, uh, be a real big benefit to Democrats who, um, you know, could utilize this as a way to uh, motivate their voters and persuade voters. In the Central Valley, yeah, like in the Central Valley, the swing voters, probably a, a registered Democrat, white, you know, not college educated man. And is that swing voter going to be persuaded by this as much as they might be persuaded by like a $15 minimum wage or, you know, some other maybe economic issue? They're probably not going to you know, run to the polls and think I was going to vote for Republicans, but now because of choice, I'm going to vote for Democrats. But in Orange County, where you have a lot of swing districts like in the legislature and in Congress and any swing districts that go into San Diego, um, you know, or nationally, I've looked at districts around kind of suburbs of in Texas, around Denver, around Colorado, um, you know, even districts in Virginia, um, 
where uh, the swing voter is the type of voter that could be motivated by this issue and where it might not be just California. It looks like there's a couple other states uh, that will be doing state constitutional amendments to enshrine the right uh, for women to have access to abortion. And uh, that could be a way for them to drive turnout. Uh, you know, similar to how anti-abortion ballot measures had in the past been utilized to drive Republican turnout. Speaking of the national picture, I saw that Dave Weigel, I think that's how you pronounce his name, uh, had talked about the idea that this might sort of give the Democrats a, something stronger to run on, but he was skeptical of that. And I'm wondering, uh, what do you see as far as the, the national picture? Do you think that really is going to have that much of an effect or do you like, where do you fall out on that question? I feel like you can't say that everywhere in the country, it's going to have that effect, but I think it's going to have that effect where the swing voters are um, going to be persuaded by this issue. So if, and, and really swing voters are not monolithic, um, just like we always talk about independents aren't monolithic. And for some swing voters, um, they're just different issues that might get them to uh, either be persuaded to vote for a different candidate or party or to turn out. Remember, both of those are different kind of minute or different kind of levers to improving a party's chance at the polls is how well they can persuade voters and how well they can get their persuaded voters to then cast a ballot. In California, I think we have some great examples. Like I mentioned, Orange County versus the Central Valley. Um, this probably isn't going to be the be all end all in the Central Valley. You know, pro-choice voters in the Central Valley probably already are Democratic voters and maybe it increases their turnout but it's not going to persuade a lot of voters differently in the Central Valley. In Orange County, it could have both functions, persuasion and turnout. And um, so there's also other areas that are kind of tweeners. Like when we look at Northern LA County, where Mike Garcia is the incumbent member of Congress, and a lot of people in Sacramento remember Christy Smith. Um, if that's the election uh, that we face, uh, would that be a issue where it could help swing those races. So there's a, I think it's situational and not just, you know, a slam dunk everywhere. I do remember uh, the suburbs of Denver was one as an example where uh, we were looking at districts and, uh, and there were districts that were like one or two point lean Republican. And my question was, how many white women are in that district? And uh, those kind of questions uh, we're basically to dig into if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, where I felt the um, greatest impact would be. Uh, and, uh, you know, that on top of all this stuff, remember that we can only be talking about so many issues at a time. And the Bill Clinton mantra in 92 was, it's the economy, stupid and to bring all the arguments back to the economy. Uh, right now, the economy isn't Democrats' best friend um, as a message. And in a way, anything to change the topic from what's going on right now should help Democrats on that, that uh, generic ballot and shift the conversation away from things where, honestly, Democrats are pretty underwater right now, like the economy. Well, so one thing that this may be very far afield, but there is discussion that Democrats may try to pass at the House level and the Senate 
pass a bill that enshrines a woman's right to choose uh, as federal law, and that that would go through. I think it would easily go through the House. Uh, the Democrats already has. Okay, there you go. Uh, so the Senate, obviously, we have the filibuster currently. There are discussions, you know, online, which really probably don't mean that much, but uh, discussions online that this would be a time to get rid of the filibuster. And assuming the perfect world uh, for the Democrats that they get this through, they do manage to somehow get it through the Senate. Biden signs it. Does it change things? Uh, would that sort of undercut their message or would it underscore why, why, if you care about this issue, you need to vote for Democrats? Is there any lesson to be taken away there? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's true that Democrats have uh, control ostensibly of all three branches at the federal level. Um, obviously, the control in uh, the Senate is uh, really maybe uh, not an effective majority where you only have the majority when uh, Kamala Harris is casting the tiebreaker vote and where you don't have the filibuster uh, allowing the minority to have that outsized power of controlling what can even come to the floor. So um, uh, I think the question is where the votes would be in the Senate for that, uh, that change, but if the legislative route is the only route to actually permanently fixing this, it could put a lot of pressure on those Senate races um, going into November, essentially where in some states, the access to abortion at a national level uh, really could be on the line, um, presuming Democrats hold the House. Uh, if, if Democrats narrowly make the gains in the Senate they need to where they would have the ability, if they got rid of the filibuster, to uh, to pass national legislation. They still have to have maintained the majority in the House as well. Um, it's going to be real tough in the environment 24 hours ago to achieve that. Um, it's going to really be an open question as to how much this changes, uh, you know, the baseline for us nationally. It could be a unprecedented shift. Uh, of the electorate. It could be in a situation where Republicans are like the dog that caught the car um, and where they're not ready for kind of the national whiplash that's going to occur when, uh, you know, this thing actually settles in and people realize like, oh God, you know, decades of talking about abortion, you know, going back in my experience to like work uh, and that fight, um, we never really thought it was this real, but um, to have the decision come down, especially the way that it was worded in that, that leaked draft, uh, would probably shock a lot of people. And remember that that leaked draft not only pointed to this undercutting right to Roe v. Wade, but also overturning Casey, um, really undercutting a lot of the uh, judicial uh, elements that went into legalizing gay marriage, um, providing other access to jobs and healthcare to LGBTQ uh, couples and individuals. And so uh, this could be even a bigger monument, more monumental shift in a number of key issues for Democrats than just the access to abortion. The process that the um, court use when they render opinions, uh, the, the document gets traded around, goes from one justice to another, to another, to another, 
it gets revised, the language gets changed, and you know, there's a lot going on there. This was written in February. So this is written about mid-February, I believe. So it's a couple months ago, in any event. Um, it could change before it's final, before it's ultimately and formally released. You see that happening. You're not a court watcher, I know, but is there, you know, politically, is that something that could happen? I mean, yeah, I, I'm not a court watcher. I have gone to the Supreme Court to listen to cases and uh, uh, been to the Supreme Court when cases have been announced uh, when I was in college. And we also flew back because uh, for those of us who were around Sacramento a long time ago, uh, my wife, Jody Hicks, uh, first brush with the Supreme Court was she was a staffer who wrote a bill uh, that would... Uh, place age limits on access access to video games that went all the way to the Supreme Court and we actually went and heard uh, that case at the Supreme Court uh, me and Jody and Chris and Brittany her two adult kids and uh, so uh, my experience as a court watcher has only to literally watch the court um, so I don't know a lot about beyond that about um, you know, how much decisions shift and change. I don't think anybody but people who've actually clerked at the court and the justices themselves um, have that lens as to um, what really goes on. It is still one of the most kind of secretive uh, and closed parts of our, of our government. You're not exactly like doing public records act requests of the Supreme Court, you know? You know, the... Um, uh speculation on who did the leak. I, I just love trivia. And of course, this is trivia. The important isn't the leak, it's the decision. But it's a pretty restricted group of people that would have access to the entire opinion. And it could be a printer, could be a clerk, could be a state, I mean, could be a, excuse me, Supreme Court employee. It just seems like you're sort of steeped in secrecy when you work for the court. And to go to leak something like this out, take an amazing, uh, amazing amount of hot spot to do that. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, I think we can be assured that it wasn't a hack. So it's not like it was something that, you know, the Russians did like the Hillary stuff or anything. Um, the first thing I had heard was that it might have been Justice Roberts himself, which sounds kind of crazy. I don't know if somebody leaked this thing out to make sure that this decision and the language in it stuck, because maybe it was teetering and they needed to back get somebody to get some backbone to get this thing done or if it was the opposite somebody was leaking this out because they wanted the court to see what the public opinion would be um so it's all just kind of parlor games right now trying to guess who it might be and and honestly it isn't the real important thing you know it's it's a interesting side note maybe it'll make a uh, a fun book or a fun movie in the future uh, Paul Mitchell, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for joining us a special edition of this. Tim Foster, thank you. Thanks, Sean. And uh, this is John Howard saying we will chat with you next time around. Thanks again. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.